0: Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. This is a very special solo episode that I created over the weekend to help you and your nonprofit thrive despite the obstacles that we all face right now. Let me start by saying that I hope you, your family, staff, and board members are safe and healthy during this pandemic. That, without a doubt, is the single most important factor. Now, probably the thing that we think about most after we think about the health of our loved ones and our friends and our colleagues, of course, is finance. And a few weeks ago, when the Payroll Protection Loan Program was passed by Congress, nonprofits across the nation heaved a sigh of relief. Not only were these SBA loans forgivable, but this was also the first SBA loan program that nonprofits could apply for. It really just seemed like an answer to a lot of organizations' current dilemmas. And of course, when the application process opened up, there was a rush of businesses and nonprofits that all sought to apply. It clogged up the very narrow SBA loan pipeline. And not only that, but it was also compounded by the banks with big stagecoach advertising saying their ability to help people was great when in fact they had a very limited capacity to actually get a loan through. And so consequently, Hundreds of thousands of nonprofits sought to apply, but did not get their loans funded. It is truly devastating for our sector, and if your organization's loan did not get funded in this round, it's also potentially devastating for your organization. And so, while we all know that there will likely be a second round, I wanted to produce this episode to help you do a few things. First, to help you assemble your team to navigate this. The second is to help provide actionable ways that you can cut expenses without harming your staff. Also to offer you some really successful ideas for raising more money quickly, And then finally, want to talk about how you can prepare your organization for successfully getting a paycheck protection loan when the fund is potentially reauthorized in the coming days or weeks. But before we do all of that, there's something that I want to remind all of the listeners. I know that we've talked about this before on the podcast, but it's definitely worth reminding folks. And so that is that right now, as leaders of organizations, it is critically important that we face this uncertainty with confidence. If we, as the leader, panic, everyone else around us panics. Staff panic, board members panic, donors, funders panic. So it is critically important that, as leaders, we stop, we take an assessment, we think about the path forward, and then with confidence, and some sense of certainty, we start to move ourselves and our organization down that path. In doing the research for this episode, I actually came across a great study by Dr. Joseph Morreale, and it is entitled The Impact of the Great Recession on the Financial Resources of Nonprofit Organizations. It is a great study. I'm actually gonna link it in the show notes. But it actually takes a look at the 2008, 2009, 2010 recession. And what he found in this study is that the nonprofits which fared the best in the last recession were those that refused to give up. They kept seeking new sources of funding, even when everyone else said, oh, people are not giving as much. Oh, foundations aren't giving as much, and individuals are not, and the government is cutting back. Well, some nonprofits refuse to say, okay, we're just not going to try as hard, or we're not going to actually you know, increase our efforts. Some nonprofits said, we will not give up. We will redouble our efforts to get funding. They kept seeking new sources of funding. They identified new markets for services, and they also made sensible adjustments to expenses. And so if like Winston Churchill, you also plan to never, never, never give up, then right now is the time to assemble your team and develop your plan. If you have not already done that, and I cannot say this enough, now is the time to do it, but time is of the essence. So you should really plan on doing this over the next week. Now, I promise you, it can be done probably in about a week to 10 days, but it will be an action-packed week. If you take the time to do it, you will better prepare your organization and yourself and your team for moving forward. So as you think about this core group of people that you maybe want to be using as a kitchen cabinet, where you go and say, hey, what do you think about this idea or that idea? Or, you know, can you help me brainstorm around how we can generate more revenue or some ways we can maybe reduce expenses without harming our staff? So think about who you want as a part of your informal or even formal advisors. Maybe you want to have a meeting or two with these folks over the next week. As I think about it, You know, I would probably want my board president. I would want my treasurer. If I had some other well-connected board members who could not only help me think through some ways to bring in additional dollars, but could help connect me to them, I would probably want them on there as well. Additionally, if there is a consultant that you've worked with before, whether that's around board development or strategic planning or fundraising planning or anything else, now is also a good time to bring that consultant in. Now, if I were you, I would manage expectations with a consultant and I would be really upfront and say, you know, we're not in a position to be able to really pay you for this right now, but what we're asking for is a few hours of your time over the next couple weeks so that we can put together a really good plan. And I will share with you that if this is a good consultant and you have been a good client for that consultant, they absolutely should do that for you. I certainly have been doing that over the last month or so for many of my clients and former clients. And I always say just upfront to my clients and former clients at times like this, you're not going to get a bill from me when we when we are just going to spend two or three hours to kind of brainstorm something or kick some ideas around so that's an expectation that you should make of the consultants that you've worked with as well and then finally don't forget those management team members so if you have a director of finance or a cfo you probably want that person around the table if you've got someone if you've got a building you want whoever's in charge of the building around the table, programs, etc. So these are all the people that you're gonna kind of bring together. Now, one of the other things that I want you to be thinking about as you're starting to just put together this team is your very basic cash flow projections. So if you do not already have cash flow projections, you definitely want to put them together now. But more than that, you also want to come up with two very important numbers. The first number is what is known as your burn rate. And so that is how much cash do you need every day and every week in order to operate? It's actually a really easy number to come up with. What you can do is you can take all of your expenses from the last 3, 6, or 12 months and divide it by the number of days. So, for example, if you take the last 6 months, you would divide it by 180 days. And so, if you take all of your actual expenses, not budgeted, but actual expenses for the last six months, divide it by 180 days, you will get a pretty accurate reflection of what it costs for your organization to operate for a single day. And now you know what your burn rate is. For some organizations, that's not gonna be a huge number. It'll probably be fourteen hundred. $1,500. $1,500. But you know, if you are a three hundred and fifty or $400,000 organization, that's a pretty big number. For other organizations, it might be 10000 or $15,000 a day. But you need to know what your burn rate is for the, in order to come up with the next number, and that is how many days of cash do you have? So if you take your cash assets, what's in your organization's checking account? If your organization has a savings account, or maybe has invested some money in CDs that are easy to cash out, those are all. That's all essentially cash. So as an example, just going to keep the math simple. Let's say that your daily burn rate is $1,000 a day. And that means that over the last six months, your actual expenses have been $180,000. So if your daily burn rate is $1,000 a day and you have $15,000 in the bank, you know that if you did not get another penny in your bank account you could operate for 15 days before you were out of cash. So those are two critically important numbers. The first number will give you a goal. Okay, this is how much on average we need to see coming in every day. The second number, which is how many days of cash do you actually have on hand, will tell you what your runway is. How long do you have to try to make sure that you've got enough money coming in the door So, I promise you that's the only math we're going to be doing in this episode, but I did want to throw that out there as well. So, once you have a sense of what your burn rate is, the next question is is what are some ways that you can reduce expenses without harming your staff? So, I wanted to throw a few out there. I'll also Put together a checklist that we're not going to put in the show notes. I'm actually going to serialize this podcast episode into several blog posts over the coming week. So I will put this checklist into um, the blog post that we do for this. But the first thing I want you to think about is what can you renegotiate? Because even your fixed contracts, you might think they're non negotiable. You might think that you have no leniency, but you don't know that until you call the person or organization and you have that conversation. Let me give you some examples. If you rent office space, this is absolutely the time to call up your landlord and ask for reduced rent for the next three months or four months or six months. It is fair for you to do that. It is 100% fair for you to do that. Now, your landlord is going to push back a little bit, which is why you should probably maybe ask for six months and hope to get three months of rent reduction. And you probably also should not expect to pay no rent, but what you maybe want to go for is a 50 or 60% reduction in your rent. Now, you could also try to do that if you've got any large equipment leases. So if you lease a copier or a van or something like this, right now is a good time for you to call up your finance company and try to renegotiate that as well. I will share with you that some people really, really hate negotiating. And some people really hate asking for a discount. It just, it makes them feel uncomfortable. I actually talked to someone over the last week that told me that doing negotiations like that just makes them feel icky. And so my advice is always, if you're uncomfortable, say so. Start out the conversation by saying to your landlord or to your copy or leasing company, you know, I am incredibly uncomfortable even asking about this, but I care about my organization so much and I care about the people who work for us and the people we serve so much that I have to ask you this question because we, over the coming months, will have to make some difficult choices. The choices will be, as an example, do we house people? Or do we pay 100% of our rent? Or, for example, do we keep everybody employed? Or, we, or do we pay 100% of our rent? You just put that up front. You say, look, I'm uncomfortable, but this is so important that I'm willing to be in this place of not feeling good about asking for a discount. Now, it is human nature that the vast majority of people that hear that are going to take a step back, and then they're going to try to make you feel comfortable. So, I promise you it will help the conversation go better. Now, something else that I want you to remember is that you, when you're asking for a discount, are not asking for something for free. You are asking for a concession so that you can survive either this short period of time or the recession and return to being a full paying customer. So that is the first thing to keep in mind. You're not asking for free. You're asking for a concession. And really, it's in their best interest to give it to you. If as an organization you go under during this period, they're never going to collect another dollar of rent from you. They're going to have to come back and take the copier and now try to lease a used copier to somebody. So it is in their best interest. And that gives you more leverage as part of this conversation. And the other thing that I want you to remember, and it's funny because I've always felt this way about asking major donors for a large gift after we've cultivated them appropriately, all they can do is say no. You know, that's all they can do is say no. Now, typically with major donors, they say no, then I'll step back and say thank you and kind of move the conversation forward and I won't press it. But with vendors, you should make them say no three times. Let's say you ask for a 60% discount on your rent for a period of six months and the landlord just says, ah, I can't do that. There's no way I can do that. Sorry. And then the landlord's just silent, says nothing at all. Just like that little bit of silence. And if I were you, I'd try to count in my head to about nine or 10 and then I would say, okay, maybe you can't do six months and you can't do 60%. Could you consider four months and 50%. And then see what the landlord says. Do they say no again or do they say yes or do they say maybe? So the whole point is do not accept no the first time with your vendors or with your landlords. Make sure that they have to tell you unequivocally no three times. Every time they say no, it will be harder for them. Believe me when I say this to you. So that is the first thing that you can do to to help reduce your operating expenses, is to renegotiate. The second is that if you are operating at a reduced capacity, then you can also renegotiate your service contracts because it's based on a reduced need. And so think about if you have a housekeeping service that or janitorial service that comes in and cleans your office, if you have a landscaping contract, a shredding contract, an internet service, phone service. Any of those things are completely appropriate. And so, again, as an example, if two-thirds of your staff are working from home right now and you're currently paying for a gigabyte of download and upload speed, you probably don't need that. So you can actually call your internet company up and negotiate a discount. You may have to accept lower speeds, but you could certainly negotiate that. Also, as an example, um, if two-thirds of your staff are currently working from home and you have a janitorial service, they don't have to do nearly as much work as they used to. So you can also reach out to them and ask them for a discount as well. And then along those same lines, you should definitely have a conversation with your insurance broker because your insurance broker is the perfect person for you to talk to about reducing your general liability insurance. And your if you have vehicles as an organization, your auto insurance. And here's why. If you have fewer people coming into your facility, you know the risk is not nearly as high. And if you have staff that are no longer driving your organization's vans or vehicles, those risks are not nearly as high either. So talk to your broker about reducing your insurance costs as well. And Finally, if you have completely ceased place-based operations, so 100% of your staff are working from home, then you might actually want to call some of these vendors and just ask if they can pause the service. And that's true whether it's your phone service, your internet service, whatever it may be. Now, if you've got a security system, you still have to figure out how that security system is going to operate. But again, this is a good time to do that. And then the final thing for you to think about doing is to renegotiate your accounts payable and potentially even slow pay some vendors so if there is a vendor that you used only once um you don't think you're going to use this vendor again you may want to call that vendor up and just say hey you know i know right now we owe you a thousand dollars times are really tough can we negotiate 50 cents on the dollar and see what they say again If you're uncomfortable with it, make sure that the vendor knows that you're uncomfortable with it. And then also don't be afraid to slow pay some vendors. Part of managing cash flow is deciding which vendors you have to pay right now because your lights are going to get turned off and which vendors you can pay in 45 or 60 days. Those are the non-staff ways that you can save, potentially save on operating. Now, You should also ask yourself if you have any staff that would receive as much or more income from the new enhanced unemployment. Now, you might be doing a double-take and saying, wait a minute, Dolph, you mean I could potentially lay staff members off and they would make as much or maybe even more money than what I'm paying them now? And the fact of the matter is that is correct in some cases. So the CARES Act, as you may be aware, Added $600 per week to unemployment benefits. And that is over and above the amount that a furloughed employee would normally receive. And so I'm going to give you two examples. I promised you no more math. And okay, I'm going to have to walk that back. There's some light math here. But I'm going to give you two examples from two different states. Let's say that you're a California nonprofit. And by the way, I use that as an example because. More of our listeners are in California than any other state in the union. So if you're a California nonprofit and you have an employee making $48,000 per year, you lay them off or you furlough them, they would qualify for $450 per week in California. And on top of that, they would get another $600 of stimulus unemployment. That's one thousand. dollars $50 a week. So, in other words, if you furloughed them, they would actually make about $125 more per week on unemployment than what you are currently paying them. So, in some cases, if you furlough employees with the intention of bringing them back, you're actually not going to be causing them harm. What you will be doing is saving some precious operating dollars so that in the future you have those dollars to bring the employee back. Now, some of you might be thinking, Dov, that's California because they just have such a generous unemployment system. Of course, that equation works in California. So the other example I'm gonna give you is Texas. So if you furloughed an employee in Texas who was making $48,000 per year, believe it or not, in Texas, they would actually qualify for even more. So they would qualify for $480 per week of base unemployment. And on top of that, what do they get? They get the $600 stimulus unemployment as well. So now that person is bringing home $1,080 a week on unemployment. And that's about $155 more than what they would make if you kept them on your payroll. Keep in mind that when you do this, it will impact your long-term unemployment rating, and it will also impact your future unemployment insurance costs. So there is a cost to your organization for this, but it's often a deferred cost, and it's a way that if you were primarily concerned about your staff now, you can compassionately help them while also ensuring that you have those precious operating dollars in the bank to bring your staff back, when you fully reopen. And I will also share with you that I know of some nonprofits that are furloughing staff so that their staff can essentially bring home even more money on unemployment and the nonprofit is still covering their health insurance. So there are even some ways you could do this very compassionately. If you are interested to see if this strategy might work in your state, here's what you need to do. Go to Google and type in the name of your state. Like, for example, I live in Georgia. So I would type in Georgia unemployment calculator. And a calculator will pop up and I can put in what quarterly wages were and then I can figure out what base unemployment would be. And then, of course, I add the $600 stimulus to that. So again, I think it is very likely that you could do this. But just remember that if you are Looking at furloughing staff or eliminating positions, be very strategic about this. Do not make decisions, especially if you're going to be eliminating positions. Do not make decisions based on who is the longest tenured or who is the most popular. You want to make sure that you keep your absolute best performers because when you fully reopen, it's those performers that are going to be driving your organization forward. So make really good decisions when you have to decide to eliminate a position or furlough someone and know that, well, they might start looking for work somewhere else when you furlough them. So those are some ways that you could potentially reduce operating expenses significantly without causing harm or pain for your staff. But now let's talk about the other side of the equation. How can you raise more money? Well, the first thing I want you to do is I want you to email your finance person or bookkeeper and ask them to send you the accounts receivable report. Because oftentimes when I look at a nonprofit's accounts receivable report, I often see money that the organization is owed that has been owed to them for 60, 90, or even more days than that. And so the first thing you do is you look through those, and you're like, okay, who's, who's been owing us money for the last 60, 90, 180 days? And can I call them up, and can I squeeze them a little bit and try to get some money out of them? One of the things that you heard me say is, can I call them up? It is essential that you reach out in a very personal way. Most people are probably going to ignore an email asking about the status for a payment. So if I were you, I would leave a voicemail, immediately send an email. The next day, I would call again and send another email. And eventually, I would hopefully talk to the person. Now, if this is a receivable that is aging significantly, so maybe it's someone or an entity that has owed you money for 180 days or more, and you've been thinking, eh, we may have to write this off. Well, if you're thinking about that, then when you talk to that person, really... Have that conversation and say, can you pay us 50 cents on the dollar and we'll write off the rest. Right now, what you want to do is try to make sure you bring funds into your organization and squeezing your accounts receivable will help you do that. Now, there's something else that I want you to do. And I want you to think about donor advised funds at your local community foundation. Hopefully, you already have a relationship With your local community foundation and this is a great time for you to call up your program officer and say i know that you're getting flooded with folks talking to you about this but we have some very urgent needs right now and i'm hoping that i can describe to you what they are and then you could maybe think about some donors advised funds that would be interested in helping us with this need here's the beautiful thing about donor advised funds they are very, very close to recession-proof because the donor has already contributed the funds to the community foundation. And so the donor is not thinking, "Ah, oh, well, if I give this money now, I may not have access to the money later for my family's own needs or my business's needs because they no longer have access to that money. It belongs to the community foundation, but they're able to tell the community foundation how to give the earnings from those funds away. So, what you want to do again is just really ask your program officer to think about donor advised funds that might be interested in the needs that your organization currently has. This, by the way, also has a double fundraising benefit because it helps you establish another relationship with a donor advised fund or maybe even multiple relationships with donor advised funds. Now, I would also like for you to think about using mail and email diplomatically to ask your lower-level donors for contributions. Let me also be clear that this is not the time to send a bold email or letter that starts off saying, we need your contribution and we need your contribution now. That is that is somewhat tone deaf. You don't know if this letter or this email is going to go to someone who is personally impacted by COVID-19 or who has lost their job or has been furloughed. So if I were you, I would craft that letter in such a way that you first start by asking about the donor and, you know, really acknowledging that you hope that they are doing well. I would then find some way that you could give something to the donor that has value, but no monetary value. And so, for example, maybe there's a fact sheet that you could give them that they would actually really want to use. Or perhaps if you uh, offer donor benefits, you say to them, because we know during COVID-19 you probably won't be able to use your donor benefits, we are going to automatically extend your donor benefits for another three months or another four months. And then toward the end of the letter, I would just very nicely say, you know, we do have some very special needs right now as an organization, here is what they are. And if you are in a position to give, we would be really grateful if you did. And if you do that type of a soft ask, you are much more likely not to offend any of your donors and you are likely to raise funds. I also want to share with you that there have been times, like in the last recession when I did this, and I would, I would get letters back because one of the things that I always try to do is to the greatest extent possible, personally sign solicitation letters. And so I would get letters back from donors who would say, I would love to give, but I just lost my job. And I would never get a lot of them, but I would typically get three to four. And so, I always made a point then of reaching out to those donors and having a conversation. I, it, of course, expressed, you know, that I that I was dismayed that they'd lost their job. But I would also ask them if there was anything that I could maybe help them with. Typically, they would say, no, there's really nothing I can think of. And, and I would push a little bit. And I would ask, you know, what type of work are you looking for? And they might say, well, you know, I'm an accountant. So I'm really looking to be an accountant somewhere. Then I would ask them... To connect with me on LinkedIn. And I would essentially say to them, okay, if you're applying for an accounting job with a company or a nonprofit that I'm connected to, please let me know. I'm happy to put in a really good word for you about how important you are in the community and about the role that you play in our community. And then the other thing I would do is if I saw jobs come across my desk that I thought they might be a good candidate for, I would forward those jobs as well. Here's the interesting thing. I can't say that I ever actually helped someone get a job because of this. But every time that I did it, the donor was so incredibly thankful. And when they started working again, they always, always would renew their support. And almost every one of them would say to me, Dolph, Yours is the first organization that I'm renewing my support on because you were so supportive of me when I lost my job. So do not think of this as just a way to ask people for money. This is really a way for you to build your relationship with your donors at a time when things are hard for many people. couple more things I just want you to think about as you think about soliciting people by mail and by email. I know that some people right now are still uncomfortable with the idea of doing that, even a soft pitch. But keep in mind that not everyone is unemployed. And also keep in mind that many people are getting stimulus checks and they don't necessarily plan on spending that money. And so they could peel off $100 or $120 of their stimulus check for an organization that they really care about. So, just want you to think about those. I also want to share with you an excellent resource. Um, Alan Cantor just had an article published in the Harvard Business Review entitled "Nonprofit Fundraising in the Age of Coronavirus." I am also going to link that in the show notes so that you have a copy of that. Now, the mail campaign you're going to do that should only be done with your lower level donors. Probably depending on how many donors you have, if you have 10,000 donors, you know, this threshold changes. But, you know, if you've got a thousand or 500 donors, you probably want to send the mail campaign to people that have given $250 or less or $500 and less. And then for everyone else, think of those as your major donors. You want to pick up the phone and you want to call them. And here's how that conversation is going to go first, you are going to ask how they are doing this is a stressful time for everyone, we all are at a place right now where we're spending a lot more time at home. And so whether your donor is retired or working or a stay-at-home parent, I promise you that they're gonna wanna have conversations with you about what's going on in their life right now. So use this as the opportunity to connect. And as I've already kind of mentioned, if they're having a hard time, a health concern, a job loss, whatever it might be, ask about ways you can help, and go the step further to offer some ways that you can help. I say this all the time, but so often we will say, oh, let me know if there's anything I can do, and we know the other person's going to say, oh, no, that's all right, I just appreciate you listening. And listening is good, but the people that really care, the people that take that extra step and say, okay, I, I hear you say there's really nothing, but what if I, and then you ask them what you might be able to do for them, you know, so what if I connected with you on LinkedIn? And also when I saw positions that may may be of interest to you, I shared those with you. And then the person go, oh my gosh, that's great. Then just make sure that you actually do it. At some point in that conversation, the donor is going to ask you how things are going at your organization. And that is your opportunity to share what you've done to be proactive, the ways that you are serving your community during the COVID-19 crisis and the ways that you are preparing to serve your community in what it will likely be the coming recession. And of course, it's also your opportunity to share with the donor if you have any special needs as an organization. So whether that's, gee, we're really concerned about payroll or We have a really special need. We have a lot of people that now cannot afford food and we're spending four times more on food than we used to be spending. And we're trying to get that food out to everyone who needs it. So that's your opportunity to really share what your special needs are. And honestly, in those conversations, you know, if I were in your shoes, I probably would not even say, you know, Hey, can you give a thousand dollars to that? but what i probably would say is if there's anything that you might be able to do to help us with that we would be really appreciative if they asked what that might look like then you know then i would probably go into more detail and say well if you can make a contribution or connect us with those who could or connect us with Businesses that can help provide food for some of our clients, whatever connections you're looking for, that's the time then to make the specific ask. But right now, I would not put a hard ask on the table unless the donor specifically asked that I do that. Now, the next thing that you want to do is call your funders and you want to talk to them about a few things. Much like you made your major donors, they're probably working from home. They're probably feeling socially isolated right now. So first, just have the conversation and just connect as human beings. And then, much like with your major donors, discuss any pressing needs. They will let you know if they have funds available. They may say, well, you know, we've got a special cycle coming up in two weeks. Make sure you apply. But I promise you, they will let you know if they have funds available. But here's what you should be asking them about. If they are a foundation that had supported you and maybe provided... Um, restricted or temporarily restricted funds for a program, you could maybe ask them to release those restrictions so that it would essentially be unrestricted money that you could spend on operating. If it's a funder that had made a multi-year pledge, you could ask if they could accelerate or advance their they're giving so that you would have more funds this year to see you through this difficult time. So there's a lot of benefit that can come out of having just frank conversations with your foundation donors and also your highest level major donors about additional ways that they could help you. So once you have your draft plan in place, it is time to share it with your governing board. And here's how I would do that. If I were you, I would essentially put together a Zoom meeting or some type of online meeting. I would ask all the board to participate. I would walk them through the plan and I would ask them to pick it apart. And so I would say, "Okay, you know, you know, we're we're planning to cut operational expenses in the following ways. We're looking at furloughing staff in the following ways. Here's what we're currently starting to do to bring in more money." And then And then I would just put it out there and I would say, okay, what board members, what do you think we've missed? What in this plan do you think we could improve? And I'll share with you that some executive directors are really threatened by doing this, but you want your board to help you identify those things that you might have missed, expenses that you could have reduced or income sources that you could have taken advantage of. And so call the question and ask them, And then also, as part of your plan, make sure that you have ways that board members can help your organization during this time. And those ways really need to go beyond just, we need the board to give, and we need the board to fundraise. So if there are some some specific things that your board members could do, again, whether that's connections that they create or possibly even, and I'm normally not a fan of this, but we are in a crisis, or roll up your sleeves and help us with a roll-up-your-sleeves-and-help-us-with-a-specific-project, now is the time to ask your board members for that type of an involvement. And Let every board member know that following the meeting, you are going to call each person individually, and that you're going to have three specific asks for each one. And then you've got to strategize for each of your board members what three things are you going to ask for. And by the way, I did not come up with that idea on my own. There is an amazing banker in Phoenix. His name is Chad Wolver, and he gave me that idea. It's a phenomenally good idea. So I've got to give credit to Chad on that one. So... Now let's talk real quick about the contingency planning that we just went through. You're going to figure out how to reduce operating expenses. You're going to figure out some ways that you can increase funding. And let me tell you the good news. 100% of that does not have to work out for your organization in order for your organization to thrive in this difficult period. If just 75% of what you plan works out, you'll probably be okay. And again, that is without a doubt, I think, the best news. You're not counting on everything to come through. You just need the majority of it to actually happen and to achieve the results that you want. Before we end this podcast, I promised that we would also talk today about some ways that your organization can prepare to take advantage of the payroll protection program when it is funded. Because let's face it, it we will likely be refunded. So here's the first thing for you to know. When we look at all of the businesses and nonprofits that were funded under the Payroll Protection Program in its very first round, those that had established banking relationships fared better. And so that's one of the reasons why construction and manufacturing fared so well. Both construction and manufacturing often use Lines of credit to start construction projects and to buy the raw goods necessary to actually make the product that they're manufacturing. And consequently, they have strong banking relationships. So when the payroll protection program rolled out, their bankers just called them and said, Hey, okay, here are the five documents you need, get them in place, and let's get your loan application in as soon as possible. So What you as an organization need is you need to be prioritizing your banking relationships as well. As a general rule, banking relationships with smaller, locally controlled banks are far better than relationships with huge national and regional banks. At a smaller, locally controlled bank, you are not a number. Your underwriting does not happen in a city a thousand miles away. It happens in an office 10 miles from your organization. And so the first thing I'd recommend that you do, honestly, is start to have conversations with some smaller locally controlled banks about the possibility of them helping you with the payroll protection program and, of course, with the understanding that you are moving your account over there. I know an inordinate number of smaller nonprofits, nonprofits with budgets of under a million dollars or maybe even under $2 million, who tried to go through some of the big banks like Wells Fargo and Chase and just ran under roadblocks. They just never got their loan application fully completed and in on time. And you need a banking relationship that is going to do that for you. So again, that's the very first thing. Think about switching banks and think about having those conversations over the next couple weeks with some smaller locally controlled banks that are approved SBA lenders. So let me also say that if for one reason or another, you are not able to consider switching banks, this is also the time then for you to start having conversations with some other non-bank SBA lenders. And there are some good non-bank SBA lenders, and those are essentially just lending institutions that broker SBA loans. I actually know a number of nonprofits that had significant issues trying to go through Wells Fargo and instead went with a loan broker called Lendio. And I will put a link to their website on our show notes. But let me be clear. If I was the executive director of an organization that was banking with a big bank and they were unable to help me get a paycheck protection program loan in the very first round, I would say to myself, well, you know, past performance is probably the best indicator of what the future holds, so I'm not going to try to use the bank. Instead, I'm going to find some other way to work the system, whether that is another smaller locally controlled bank or an SBA lender that's not a bank or a broker like Lendio. I would absolutely find another way. But now is the time to find that way to make sure you have that relationship before the next round is funded and the application process is opened up. As I mentioned at the very top of the episode, I felt a strong need to put this podcast episode together over the weekend. And because of that, we are not going to be doing full on show notes, we're not going to have the transcript, we're not going to do all of that, we're going to have light show notes. But some things that we are going to do, I'm going to make sure that we link to some additional articles that will be of use to you. Uh, we're going to link to the Stanford Social Innovation Reviews Outrun the Recession article. Um, we're also going to link to a great article called The Impact of the Great Recession on the Financial Resources of Nonprofit Organizations. And then finally, we're going to uh, link to Nonprofit Quarterly's article, Deconstructing the Not-So-Great Nonprofit Recession. I think all of those articles will be useful to you. And as I would also mentioned, over the coming week, we'll be serializing the content of this episode into our blog. So you can also visit our blog and get a lot of this information, certainly by the end of this week. Um, But always know that whether you want our show notes or our blog, you can get to that at SuccessfulNonprofits.com. Once again, that's successfulnonprofits.com. If you just take a few things away from our episode today, here's what I want you to remember. By focusing on reducing your operating expenses, by coming up with ways that you can generate more dollars, and also by preparing yourself to take advantage of the next round of the payroll protection program, assuming it gets refunded, you will be setting your organization up for success. And let me be clear I do think that we are headed into a recession, but your organization can not only weather the recession, you can thrive in it. Let me tell you a couple facts. In the last recession, nonprofit employment remained stable while business employment declined. Additionally, giving for nonprofits among a large variety of types of nonprofits remained relatively stable as well. So, we will all get through this together, and we and our organizations can emerge stronger and more resilient than ever before. That is our show for the week. I hope you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. I am not an accountant or attorney and neither I nor the Goldberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. This material has been provided for informational purposes only, is not intended to provide, and should not be relied on for tax, legal, or accounting advice. Always consult a qualified licensed professional about such matters.